I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshamanthan, also known as Suki, and the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So this was a bizarre week. Last Friday, the Nunez memo came out. You can find plenty of stories about it in very reputable publications like the New York Times. But for the purposes of today, we're just going to say that this memo seems to be an entirely invented conspiracy that no sane person would take seriously. And yet the Trump administration seems intent on using this entirely invented bonkers conspiracy to suggest members of their own party, like Robert Mueller, and their own appointees, like Rod Rosenstein and the FBI director Christopher Wray, are in fact political conspirators determined to take down the Trump administration. Commentators are using terms like Dadaist to describe the situation or through the looking glass. But what you and I have discovered here at the LitHub podcast, one place where we might look to find out what happens in reality when a nativist political party begins to attack basic political institutions and the concept of truth in order to gain power. Poland. You heard me right. On January 29th, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the Polish parliament introduced a draft bill that would criminalize any suggestion of complicity by the Polish state in Nazi war crimes, including the Holocaust. That's scary in and of itself. Later in the show, we're going to talk to author Eileen Pollack about how anti-Semitism has been emboldened by the rise of Trump and the alt-right. But Poland's nationalist government, which President Trump visited in July 2017, is also providing a blueprint for how a successful democracy can be bent towards authoritarianism. And for that, we're going to talk to the author Steve Yarbrough, long a favorite of mine, about contemporary Polish politics and how exactly a government that was once led by Lech Walesa came to pass a law like this. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on today. We're so happy to have you. Your new book, The Unmade World, is set in Poland and America. Can you talk about what led you to start writing about Poland? 
Well, I'm married to a Polish woman, like my main character in the novel. Um, and I've been going to Poland since 1987. Um, my wife and I bought an apartment there about 15 years ago, and I really considered it my second home. Um, and, you know, I got to know the place really well and to care about it. And obviously some recent events there um, have been very disturbing. So, yeah, I mean, I was under the admittedly dumb, uninformed American impression that things were going pretty well in Poland. They liberalized, the economy was in better shape, joined the EU. But now that I've started reading about this uh, Law and Justice Party, which is the party that's in control of, of Poland right now, and that backs this law, if I'm understanding it right, and they're under the, under the guidance of these, uh, well, one of, one of the twins is dead, but started off under these two very weird twins, Lech and uh, Yaroslav Kaczynski, I started to get really creepy feelings about uh, what's happening there. Could you give us some background on the Kaczynski brothers? You know, they started off working with solidarity under Lech Valenza, didn't they? Yeah, they did. But I think that um, that there's some misconceptions in the West uh, and even within Poland itself about just how prominent their roles were. On December 13th, 1981, when the communist government declared martial law, and began to arrest and intern solidarity activists, uh, some of them for a year or longer. Uh, they kept Yaroslav Kaczynski for all of about three or four hours, and they let him go. Mm. Um, that's not, the, that's not the, the vision of himself that he likes to promote, but that is the reality of it. Um, as far as as how the country found itself in this situation. I think that, um, you know, in cities like Krakow and where I lived and uh, Warsaw and some of the others like Wrocław, you see tremendous change. Um, the economy is going really well. Still, there are people it's still in, going well. It's still going well. It's got one of the strongest rates of growth in Europe right now. Out in the villages and the small towns, it's a different story. There are people out there who are legitimately suffering. And um, I think what Kaczynski has been able to do is to play on their economic fears, on their fears of the other, um, and also to, um, you know, to bring out into the open some of those very unfortunate traits that people think are associated with Poland, the chief among them being anti-Semitism. It's real. It's still there. Most of the people I know um, are ashamed of that history, and they've done everything they can uh, to make the country a better place and to acknowledge the importance of Jewish culture. But there are still people out in the villages who... Um, you know, they've got some nasty opinions. And I think also the Catholic Church in Poland, which was, um, to my mind, an admirable force under the communists, has given in to some very bad tendencies as well. Um, and they're part of the, you know, the nationalist movement, a huge part of it. Um, I think that they've been um, turned off by uh, the acknowledgement of gay rights in Poland, by, um, you know, various um, liberalizing movements, and that's behind it all. I, I also have to say that 
Kaczynski himself is a most incurious man. He's been out of the country. <laughs> this all one just sounds time. so familiar to me. Like this is all happening to yeah. us now. You, you've got a you got a guy in Kaczynski who has been out of Poland one time in his life. I believe he was eight years old. Uh, he went with his mother to the Crimea for a few days. Doesn't speak a foreign language. Doesn't have a bank account. Lives at home alone with a cat. Um, the country is being controlled by this man. He's the power behind everything. That's very weird. Um, and there are a lot of very weird kind of Trumpian details about the Kaczynski twins, including the fact that they both started off as child actors. Um, right. and Another thing that I, made me feel creepy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it seems straight out of a novel. Um you know, I would suggest, Whit, you sent me that great New York Times magazine story by James Traub, um, published on November November 2016, and there's sort of more details there, and we'll post that in our in our various FNF feeds. But just to do a little timekeeping, uh, the Kaczynskis founded the Law and Justice Party in 2001, then Law and Justice won the parliamentary elections in 2005, edging out the moderate civic platform, and then Lech Kaczynski becomes president. And then in 2007, this right-wing coalition collapses amid accusations of scandal. So, yeah, very familiar things going on here. I mean, it sounds like the Bush administration, right, to me, you know. And then, so after the conservatives screw everything up, the moderate civic platform governs for two terms, right? Eight years. Right. The Great Recession happens at the beginning. But after that, things are pretty good. The economy grows by 25%. It's one of the highest growth rates in Europe, as you said already, Steve. You know, um, so... This is the part I'm thinking. I was thinking about when I'm thinking about things going well in Poland. Uh, uh, your book begins slightly earlier than that, um, and it, and it sort of actually covers this whole period of change, you know. Um, but it has the early passages have this flavor of an open liberalizing Poland. And I wondered if you could read to us a passage from the beginning of the Unmade World, which takes place in 2006. Sure. While she's on the phone, they pass the cafe where they met. It's called Bunkier and is attached to an art gallery that represents the purest example of brutalist architecture in the city. Open to the air in warm weather, it's presently protected from the elements by clear plastic drop panels. The heaters must be turned up pretty high. Icicles hang from the eaves and steam is rising off the roof. He's promised Anna they'll stop by for dessert tomorrow afternoon. They've logged many an hour beneath that canopy, whenever possible, sitting at the table where he met her mom, whom he'd gone to interview for an article about women in the Solidarity Movement. A couple of summers ago, while they waited there for their order, Anna wrapped the tabletop. So, she said, drawing the syllable out, this is where the idea that resulted in me began to get a little traction, right? She told him later that he looked like a figure in a Renoir with a scarlet splotch on each cheek. Yulia ends the call. They'll hold our reservation, she says. Your friend Mustafa's exact words were, please inform refulgent Mr. Richard that upon arrival he will receive supreme justice. If I didn't know otherwise, I'd think he was threatening to execute you. You probably should have spoken English to him. Why? Is his English better? No, but it's considerably less florid. They cross the Vistula, then start west on Monte Cassino. Once they reach the outskirts, 
traffic begins to thin. Before long, they're traveling through the countryside on a two-lane highway. A lot of the nouveau riches have built villas along this route, many of them with four or even five stories. Interspersed among these new constructions are traditional Polish farmhouses. 20 kilometers from the city, he slows down. They turn onto the narrow blacktop and drive up the hill where they finally see the sign. He takes the left onto an even narrower road and drives another half kilometer, and they find themselves in the snowy parking lot. The popular dining spot is housed in a pseudo-alpine castle built by the Nazis, originally as a vacation site for Luftwaffe pilots. By the end of the war, it had become a Wehrmacht hospital, and under the communists, it had served as the Institute of Forestry. Now it belongs to a wealthy Kurdish family who fled Saddam in the 90s, then bought and remodeled the rundown structure and established a Polish-Kurdish restaurant. The idea was disjunctive enough to make it wildly appealing, which explains why even on a night like this, the parking lot is jammed. He frequently, he eventually locates a place between a Maserati and a Land Rover, the latter displaying a Croatian license plate. Someone else has come a long way for dinner. Steve, I, I love the way that that restaurant at the end sort of encapsulates these different eras of time and change in Poland. And the idea that it's run by a Kurdish family now in this sort of liberalizing Poland is going to prefigure, you know, prefigure some of the immigration issues that uh, law and justice are angry about. But I, I just wanted to note that. But I also wondered if you could just tell us who the characters are and give us a sense of the arc of the book real quickly. Right. Well, the main character is, um, is as I said, an American journalist. Uh, he and his family live most of each year in California. Uh, his wife uh, is a, a former solidarity activist, and they've got a daughter. That's who he's talking to about uh, visiting that cafe. He has covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe in 1989 and 90. That's where he met his wife. And um, so he's seen Poland before the change uh, and is occasionally just more or less uh, snapped back into the past and made to think, oh, my goodness, this used to be such a different place. Um, now it looks pretty much like any place in Western Europe until you get out into the villages. As far as what happens in this book, he has an encounter with a, a Polish man whose businesses have been undone um, by the, the advent of capitalism. Uh, he's someone who knew how to, to run a, a grocery business under the communists, but when the, the Western giants like Carrefour um, and Tesco have come in, they've essentially driven him out of business and he's turned to a life of crime. And uh, he has a catastrophic encounter with Richard um, on this particular evening, and uh, it affects both men's lives for a long time. We end up in 2016, um, and, uh, you know, after the the Kaczynski government has come to power and after people are beginning to take to the streets in protest. In 2015, the Kaczynski's Law and Justice Party won again. What was their appeal? And did you feel any of these changes beginning to happen when you were living there, sort of 
the way that I mean, you're describing people feeling economically disenfranchised. Can you talk a little bit more about that? To some extent, when you're a foreigner living there, even um, even if you know the country well, um, you, you're a little bit insulated from the changes. It didn't really affect the way we lived our day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. But we've got a lot of friends who are, um, you know, Polish artists, writers, intellectuals, and they tell me frequently, you, you may not realize just how bad it could get. And that turned out to be true. Uh, walking around Krakow until I started taking part in the protests where I occasionally found myself being heckled by folks who would have been right at home, um, you know, in an alt-right rally in Charlottesville, um, I, wasn't really, I wasn't really exposed that much. But you can certainly see the changes now. And I think what's also happened there that I think is fairly similar to what's happened here is I I have the perception that the protest movement there over the last six to 12 months, I think people have gotten very, very weary. I think people are getting tired of taking to the streets. I think they're starting to become a little more accepting. You mean like they'll give up, like they'll let it happen? It's hard to imagine polls giving up. But things may have to get worse. I mean, it Um, seems pretty bad. You have a character later in the book I'm reading from, this is on 347. uh, We're right about this time that we're talking about now, and this character says, they're letting people go left and right. All you have to do is oppose them. He's talking about the Law and Justice Party. They started up with media, firing producers and reporters from the state-run networks. Then they began cleaning house at publicly funded cultural institutions, museums, theaters, and so on. At the Ministry of Agriculture, they even fired the director of a stud farm. I mean, That's right. you know, this sort of this sort of wholesale intellectual like banishment seems quite shocking. Well, yeah, except that um, then you've got a lot of people who are already, um, you know, resentful of the elites. And, you know, this is a script that we know well in this country. Um, I'm, I mean, Trump would fire you know, everybody at CNN if he could, I guess. Oh, I'm sure that he would, and uh, and let's hope that he never gets a chance to. But oh, God. that's what they did. They they just cleaned house. But once again, uh, something else that they did that you may not know about, and this was one of their drawing cards. They announced as part of their platform that when they became, um, you know, when they came to power, they were going to give every single family. 500 zlotys a month for every child beyond the first child. And it doesn't matter, by the way, if you're a millionaire or if you're, um, you know, basically living on next to nothing in a village. If you've got five kids, you're going to get 2,000 zlotys a month. So on the one hand, um, yes, they've got a conservative platform. On the other hand... They're also engaging in state socialism. And 2,000 zlotys a month for somebody living out in a village um, and barely able to eat, it's significant. So in that sense, they've bought the election. Uh, so these th- one of the things that's interesting to me, I mean, I'm assuming that the birth thing is also somewhat related to this idea of white genocide that you hear on the alt-right, that the white, you know— uh, race needs to reproduce itself better. 
Um, right. And we're not, I'm not going to descend down the rabbit hole of that right now for this particular podcast. But one of the things that's interesting to me about Poland is there are all these similarities between the alt-right and Trump's white supremacist ideas and things that are happening with Law and Justice Party. But the, the white supremacist element of Trump's nationalism doesn't make sense in Poland, you know. But what no. about this law that we were going to talk about, um, right? We've got this law criminalizing references to Polish involvement in the Holocaust or the law and order party's attitude towards immigration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I totally get that. Yes. They demagogue immigration and they're anti-Semitic. That is true. Uh, and so and we're going to talk about that part. And that's dangerous and it's scary for anyone who's Jewish and who's living in Poland. But just to focus on the immigration side of this for a second, I find it interesting that demographically, you know, Poland is 98.6% European, you know? Right. I mean, it is like Stephen Miller's wet dream. And, and yet, you know, so, so how does that fit into this conversation? Well, as I said, there's still a lot of residual anti-Semitism, and he's been able um, to really energize that and bring it out into the open, although, you know, uh, he himself is very careful not to say anything too overt. So that's a part of it. But I think also just a lot of scaremongering saying, oh, look, they've got Muslims in France. Look what they've done. Now, here's the EU. It's trying to make us take, quote, these people who are so different from us into our country. That's been a powerful argument there. So it's like they're, um, they're, they're demagoguing the possibility of immigrants coming into the country. The possibility, the mere possibility that it could happen. Okay. It has, it has sold quite well, again, out in the countryside. Yeah, this is totally Trump playbook. It's like untethered to reality, like the Nunes memo again, or, right? It's right. reality is not at all the point. The point is just to undermine the rule of law and to change the way that people talk about other categories of people. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a form of censorship. He is all too willing to energize that. Um, just the very nature of his government, you know what it mimics is it mimics the communist governments prior to the changes. The, the power in, in Poland under the communists was never um, the, you know, the prime minister, was never a government figure. It was always the party leader. Kaczynski has no role. He's not the president. He's not the prime minister. He's just the man behind the curtain who's pulling all of the strings. And in that James, in that James Trobe article that Sugi mentioned earlier, there's a moment when Leck is ele- elected and he turns to his brother and says, Mr. Chairman, mission accomplished, even though his brother wasn't even on the ticket. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and right now, you know, President Duda... He's nothing more than a figurehead, and he's never going to do anything that Kaczynski doesn't tell him to do. So um, the other thing that I noticed I wanted to bring up was Lech uh, Kaczynski's de- died in a plane crash in April on April 10th, 2010. There is no evidence that anything, there was any foul play on this. It seems clear the pilot screwed up in bad weather. Nobody really disputes this in a factual sense, and yet... Um, Yaroslav has managed to blame this and make this a Russian conspiracy. That's what is similar to me, like with the Nunez memo, claiming the FBI is doing something conspiratorial. Just saying it without any facts 
just saying sure. it over and over again, and and finally, it, it feels like a conspiracy just because you say it and you show stuff. You do showy stuff. He he shows up and gives a speech at the tenth of every month, right near a memorial for his brother's death or something like that. I mean, it's right. It's crazy. Yeah, stuff. you you see them out in you know in Warsaw on the street doing this this thing every month with candles out. Um, they bought it. They bought it completely. It's very easy to, um, you know, to convince Poles that the Russians are out to destroy them. Um, Because, let's face it, that country got divided up uh, in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and those scars are still there. But no, he has no evidence. There is no evidence. It's just a conspiracy theory, and he sold it very well. So funny. I just this morning I spotted this. There was an article on Slate about um, why are conservatives more susceptible to believing lies, which is an American focused article. But I'm reminded of that. I mean, there's a sort of desire to believe the version that puts you in the best light. And sort of speaking of reality not being the point, we thought of doing this particular episode because of the law criminalizing the mention of Polish Polish involvement in Nazi atrocities. And there's this terrific article in Haaretz by Ofer Adaret on the work of the Polish and Jewish historian Paul Grabowski, who claims very convincingly that over 200,000 Jews were killed directly or indirectly by Poles in World War II. So why has the Law and Justice Party, which would seem to be no friend to Jews, taken a stand against admitting that Poles were involved in these atrocities? I, I think it's it's just part of his nationalist plan to convince Poland that it's somehow different, that it's somehow superior to a lot of other people, uh, and to scare it insofar as he can um, into, you know, giving in to the worst impulses of the of the folks, you know, who feel left behind. Uh, it makes it makes no sense whatsoever, because everybody knows that, yes, there were plenty of Poles who behaved hero- heroically, but we know there were pogroms in Poland. We know that there were atrocities and that, unfortunately, some Poles participated in them. There, there's been some sort of rhetorical moves to kind of um, say that the people who participated in those things were quote unquote like removing themselves from the Polish state. I think was one phrase that was from yeah. the Polish people was one phrase that was used. Um, my friend Avia Kushner wrote this piece in the forward um, about like this really interesting evidence of kind of broad Polish complicity. And the clue that she points to is um, someone who um, points to a collection of envelopes from the Polish mail. And there are all of these marks on the envelopes that indicate things like, um, you know, this mail was sent to a Jewish person here, but this, this house no longer exists. Like this Jewish, this section of Polish society no longer exists. The mail service sort of, um, had marks that specifically denoted this and just really interesting discussion of how, right. If the mail service knew, um, who didn't know, like the, the very, the places where people lived. Of course. You know, and, and think of the chilling effect that this could have, for instance, on the study of history. Um, I'm from Mississippi, okay? And, and you know what Mississippi's history is. Imagine that the state passed a law in Mississippi to criminalize any reference to the involvement in slavery of any, of any family in the state, uh, to criminalize 
any reference to the atrocities that were committed after Reconstruction, that's wiping out history. And that's the potential effect of this law. It's a terrifying thing. I would also just want to mention the my wife, uh, uh, Gail Levy, teaches uh, about the Holocaust, and, and uh, she she wanted me to mention the, the book Neighbors by Jan T. Gross, which was published right. in 2000. It was a really important work of scholarship on a, on a pogrom in a small village in Poland. And yet Vodna. Yeah. Right. I was afraid to say that name because I knew I would screw it up, so thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Steve, you're, you're going on tour to talk about this book. With American audiences, you've been out giving some readings. How, how aware are they of the situation in Poland? Are they asking questions like this? Do they know what's going on, or are they surprised? I think they, um, there's a general awareness, uh, at least from people who are coming to buy a literary novel. Uh, there's a general awareness that things have taken a dark and unfortunate turn in Eastern Europe. Um, I think it uh, some basic understanding of what's happening in Poland and what's happening in Hungary, um, but not a whole lot beyond that. So, yeah, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions, um, you know, what happens next in Poland, and I, and I honestly don't know what's going to happen next in Poland. I do know this. I know that um, that Poland would have a very hard time continuing to exist without all of the economic support that they're getting from the EU. And I think the EU has a large hammer in its hand, and I hope that it will eventually begin to wave it a little bit more, because um, some of the things that Kaczynski is doing, they're against everything that the European Union is supposed to stand for. Well, I hope they do, because I don't think it's an accident that President Trump made a state visit there. I think he supports these kinds of leaders, and it's frightening to have an American leader support this kind of nativist, nationalist movement that seems to be spreading in Europe. It, you know, it, it's not yeah. helping. Yeah, and and when, when Trump went to Poland, um, it's amazing how in the aftermath it just emboldened Kaczynski. He felt like Oh, I got a friend there. He under he understands. Yeah. Oh, um, that's so awful. But I'm also I want to take some heart in. You know, you're mentioning your friends who are Polish artists um, and other people who are critical of this kind of rhetoric. I was reminded of I was in um, Germany this past fall and at an art exhibit. I saw this terrific performance of the Polish Constitution in German, which would clearly had been put together by people who are critical. I think of exactly this kind of politics it had. Um, polls of every demographic um, performing the constitution in sort of a way that was announcing like Polish citizenship and Polishness belongs to everyone. Uh, and it was kind of a really, it was maybe the most moving thing I saw at that exhibit, the sort of broad participation also of people from a range of, from a range of backgrounds who seem to be aware of what's happening. So I hope that those people um, some of whom you also seem to be referencing, get some traction. Like, what kind of support is there um, for people to be critical of what Duda um, and Wachinski have, or sorry, Kaczynski have stood for? Well, you know, one of our friends, very good friends, is the poet Adam Zagievsky. And yeah. Adam has a platform, you know. He's he's known all over the world, and he's absolutely fearless. Um at every opportunity, he's taken a stand against this government. 
It, it, I can't help but wonder, though, what does it feel like? I, I know a little of this from my wife. What does it feel like to have fought one form of totalitarian government when you were a young person or uh, into your 30s or 40s and you thought you had won it, and now you've got to do it again? Um, and it, it just, when I think about the effect of that, it breaks my heart. But I will tell you, I took part in a protest in Warsaw um, back in May of 20, let's see, 2015. There were a quarter of a million people there. When they said March, I was not able to move for nearly 40 minutes. I was wedged in that tight. Um, so there, you, you can never count poles out. There's a point at which... Um, they're going to throw that saddle off. I am as convinced as I can be. I don't think Poland has lost its fighting spirit. I think it's just a question of when um, when the tipping point comes. Well, I would just really encourage people to go read your book and see you while you're out on tour. I think that this issue of Poland, what's happening in Poland is a lot closer to us than people realize. It's not far away. In Lawrence, Kansas, in my neighborhood, you know, in the paper just today, there's a Kansas chemistry instructor who's been living here for 30 years, was picked up by ICE, uh, and is going to be deported. Uh, he taught at Park University, which is in my town. Um, and there's an alt-right march going on in Lawrence right now. Um, yeah. These things are happening in America. You know, the idea of people being picked up and deported sounds very familiar to me. Yes, it certainly does. There was, a, there was a, an ICE... Uh, action up in New Hampshire right across the border from me a couple of months ago. I think they picked up 20 people. Allegedly, uh, they were caught in traffic stops and then they were turned over to ICE. So, um, you know, it's here. Thanks so much for coming on the program, Steve, to talk about Poland and your excellent new novel, The Unmade World, which is out now from Unbridled Books. Thank you a lot for having me on. Thanks, Steve. And now we're so happy to bring on Eileen Pollack. Eileen, my former senior colleague at the University of Michigan, is the author of seven books, including the forthcoming novel, The Bible of Dirty Jokes, which will be out soon from Four Way Books. In 2012, she wrote the novel Breaking and Entering, a New York Times editor's choice book about a Christian Jewish family moving to rural Michigan from California and encountering an America very different than the one they've known. Eileen, welcome to the show. Hi, Suki. So, so happy to be here. Eileen, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, you've written about Jewishness and Americanness frequently. We've just been speaking with the novelist Steve Yarbrough about anti-Semitism in Poland, and specifically a law suggesting criminalizing mentions of Polish complicity in the Holocaust. This passed the Polish Senate. And when we were thinking about the rise uh, of the right in Europe and, ar and the arguably, okay, well, not so arguably, parallel rise of the right here, we couldn't help but think of your terrific novel, Breaking and Entering. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's so good. Breaking and Entering takes place in 1995, if I'm remembering correctly, and came out in 2012. So both periods, part of what seemed like now the near unimaginable pre-Trump era. Uh, and your character Louise encounters anti-Semitism when she goes to look for a job, for example. Another major part of the book is the rise of Michigan militias and Louise's husband, Richard's fraught relationships with new militia buddies. Can you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write about extremism and violence and, and religious and ethnic differences through the lens of Richard and Louise Shapiro? 
Sure, sure. Um, so I moved to Michigan in 1994, sort of unwillingly. My husband got a job there, and I agreed to to move. And um, very soon thereafter, I was asked to be a writer in the schools for just a day um, in uh, a town, a city in western Michigan. And I was just shocked. I mean, this was a public school, and um, basically they told me I couldn't read anything that I'd written because it would, it would um, you know, the students were all fundamentalist Christians, and what? the teachers were all creationists. The biology oh teachers were God. creationists, and they were wearing, um, the students were wearing these bracelets that said WWJD, and I said, what does that mean? And they said, oh my God, they couldn't believe I didn't know that meant what would Jesus do, and I couldn't believe the teacher and all the kids were wearing these so, you know, so I thought, um, oh, wow, this is this is different. And then uh, not long afterward, um, Timothy McVeigh blew up the Murrah building in Oklahoma um, and, uh, you know, was soon. And I should remind people that not he, he blew it up because it was a government building and he, you know, hated the federal government. But there was a preschool on the first floor and. We were shocked because all these little toddlers died and um, he didn't, you know, he just thought that was collateral damage. And it turned out that he had done his some of his training with a friend up in uh, northern Michigan and that he had attended some meetings of the Michigan militia in the town of Dexter, which is right outside of Ann Arbor. And for a time... Um, the FBI thought that his accomplice was a, a, a man who lived in Dexter and had a uh, what, what in those days would have been called a podcast. It was just the early days of the compu- of, of computers, and he had a, a computer radio show that was just the most hateful, hateful, racist, anti-Semitic, right-wing, white supremacist radio show you can imagine, which you could pick up. In Ann Arbor, and he worked as a, a locksmith, I think, at the uh, University of Michigan, where I now worked, and where my son was in, you know, kindergarten, uh, actually preschool at the time. Um, so I thought, you know, I I, I want to write about that, and I spent some time uh, finding out everything I could about the Michigan militia, about other right wing groups. I went to. You know, one of their events, the Tax Blast, which they, it, it happens on April 15th, and they um, put their tax forms up on trees and shoot at them. Um, so, I, yeah, yeah. So that was in a public park and not too far from <laughs> Ann Arbor. And I went and they actually had so the, the hot dogs and things, you know, the food that you could eat at this event. One of them was marked with a big Jewish star and it said kosher. And then they had Hebrew national hot dogs for all the Jews they thought would show up. I mean, it was partly because that particular group was more media savvy than the rest. But, you know, and I didn't feel at all threatened, except that everybody was wearing guns. Um, on the <laughs> oh other hand, on the other hand, there were there were some groups that are really vicious, horrible people whose ideology is really, you know, terrifying. Um, I started to wonder how, as a country, we, first of all, as a state, Michigan could exist with two such, you know, two groups of people that had such radically, diametrically opposed views of the world. You know, now we would call them red staters, blue staters, alt-right and, you know, liberals to the left. But literally in the same town, you would have people 
who lived next door to each other who had these just wildly unreconcilable views of the world. I thought, gee, America is remarkable because we can pull this off or can we, you know? Maybe you could uh, read to us a little bit from the book. Sure, sure. Richard has been hanging around with the militia guys. As a Jewish young man, he was sort of not able to act out his fantasies of being, you know, a hunter warrior. So he's kind of getting off on that. And uh, just two things to know, Mike Korn, who gets referred to here, um, is a custodian at the school where Louise teaches. And he is a really awful guy. Um, he, He has this very right-wing radio show. Okay. So at Imelda's urging, Louise tells her everything about Mike Korn and the militia nuts. Richard, who overhears the conversation, dismisses her worries on the grounds that she is scaring herself so she will have good stories to tell their friends. And that's it. That's all it takes for Louise to go ballistic. Doesn't it bother you that your wife has to work in the same building with that creep, she says? Your pals from the tax place, don't you think they listen to Mike Korn's show? They probably sat next to McVeigh at those militia meetings. Did you ask Matt if he knows that bastard? Did you? Did you even think to ask? Unbelievably, Richard rolls his eyes like an adolescent boy whose mother is nattering about fears he considers groundless. Just because Matt owns a militia calendar, that makes him guilty? He probably bought it for the babes. More likely, he takes it to the bathroom and jerks off to the guns. Even if he does belong to a militia, that doesn't mean he bears responsibility for the actions of some crackpot who attended one or two meetings. Anyone could attend a meeting. I could attend a meeting. For days after that, she manages to avoid running into Matt. Having tried to give her neighbors and everyone in Stickney Springs the benefit of the doubt, She feels doubly betrayed by the revelation that the militia to which Matt belongs is connected to the bombing. She learns all she needs to know about Matt's position from Richard. Matt insists the explosion was a plot by the FBI to make the militias look bad. Apparently, you can tell from the date. April 19th was the same date the British attacked the American irregulars at Lexington, the same date the Germans burned the Warsaw Ghetto, and the same date the feds blew up the Branch Davidians and raided Ruby Ridge. So what, Louise asked Richard. Imelda's father's birthday is April 19th. Is he part of the conspiracy? As for the Warsaw Ghetto, do you mind telling me how that fits in? No matter what Floyd Goodman might tell the press, those militia guys hate the Jews. He and his gun-crazy friends are on the German side, aren't they, Richard? Have you read the militia literature the papers have been running? Matt and his pals are on the side of the guys who burned down the Warsaw Ghetto. How could she be the one presenting this evidence of anti-Semitism to her Jewish husband? She never would admit this, but at some level she'd married him because marrying a Jew was a sign of tolerance and rebellion without the problematic fuss of marrying someone black. It was fine to be married to a Jew in California, whereas neighbor, as a neighbor of theirs once put it, we don't have religions, we have cuisines. But she has ended up living in a place where it's no small matter to be married to a Jew, since if you share his name, you're taken for one yourself. You're a Jew, Louise reminds Richard, and we're living in a town with a bunch of guys who apparently have no compunctions about murdering little kids, even if they aren't Jews. If that doesn't worry you, 
But it doesn't. Richard's refusal to share her fears reminds her of the inability of the heroine in a horror movie to get anyone to believe that a man-eating monster has slopped up from the swamp. But even in those movies, the heroine eventually convinced her husband she was right, didn't she? Didn't she finally make him see the monsters were not only real, they were just outside their door? Thank you so much. Um, that part just really at the end, I'm sort of like, ah, it's now, it's now, we're at now. <laughs> we're at now. Um, and one of the striking things to me about breaking in and entering is the way it exposes the bigotry that still runs to the U.S. And at this scene, as a scene with Louise and Richard shows, I think one of the disagreements that I feel like I've been hearing for the past several, I guess maybe about the past year, sort of like the degree of alarm we should be experiencing about bigotry in general and anti-Semitism in particular. Um, is it bad enough? Is it anti-Semitism yet? Um, is it anti-blackness yet? Is it racist yet? Should we be worried yet? Can we use the word racist yet? Um, and then if we did, we've decided that we're worried, what is actually the action that we're supposed to take? And I'm curious how you thought about portraying that with Louise and Richard. You, you know, anti-Semitism in, in America isn't, um, I, I, I don't feel that it's held me back in ways that I think that, um, you know, blackness holds back most black most black people. You know, I've never not gotten a job because I'm Jewish or, or or anything like that. And you know, it's not identifiable as I'm walking down the street. But you know, if I go to a synagogue, I mean, and this has been true for years, there are armed guards there because we're afraid that somebody's going to come in and blow us up or shoot us because we're Jewish. And that's how, you know, or at a JCC, the security measures have been very strong for a long time. Um, and I think there's there are groups um, that are sort of crazy this way and are dangerous, but they've been there for a long time. They're still there now. I think Trump is giving them, you know, kind of permission to come out of the woodwork. Um, but they've been there. And I think, um, yes, it's always been anti-Semitism and racism, and, and I think people just had their heads in the sand. When I tried to publish this book, no editor in New York would publish it. They thought I, I was crazy. They looked around Manhattan and said, this isn't going on here. Oh, they thought she it was too extreme? Nuts. They just didn't, yeah. they didn't believe it? Oh, no, they didn't believe it. Wow. I can show you the things they wrote in the margins, <laughs> which today, you know, you would look and go, oh, <laughs> Yeah, she was right. I mean, I, I can, I, you know, my my wife is is Jewish. We were married in two thousand three, and we have two kids. And, you know, I don't. It was this issue was not something that we talked about. I mean, she teaches about the Holocaust. You know, it's a, you know, her her religion is a important part of her life. But, you know, when I saw uh, the alt right uh, in Charlottesville chanting "Jews will not replace us." You know, it felt very personal, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were to take this story forward or reimagine it in the light of everything that has happened since 2012, how might it be different? Uh, or would it be even more intense? Um, and are you surprised at how much anti-Semitism, its openness has increased in the United States since you wrote the book? No, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think Jews like me have this feeling like when it comes out, it's almost a sense of relief because it's just feel like people aren't going to think you're crazy anymore. Um, there it is. Um, so when I was researching this book, I was researching some of the really white identity politics groups. Um, and there's one uh, that uh, really hates Jews in particular. 
Uh, and their motto is, if you're standing close enough to a Jew to run a sword through him, you should. And you think, oh, that's crazy. There's nobody who really is like that. But they have certain slogans, like they're the true sons of Adam. And I literally put down the book that I had been reading about this group and drove across Ann Arbor to Zingerman's Deli to get the bread for my son's bar mitzvah. It was literally how funny this is. And I was stopped in traffic and I was reading the bumper sticker on the car in front of me and it said, I am a true son of Adam. He was a member of the group. I mean, I'm curious about how all of this connects to the alt-right, to Trump and how the Michigan militias, is is, is that a straight line between those things? Because anti-black racism and anti-Semitism, I think you're, I see your point about those situations being really different in the way that they're lived. Um, Yet at the same time, their rhetoric is often tied Um, And Whitney was observing earlier in this episode that the demographics are different in Europe, but white supremacy seems to have this powerful hold on the national imaginary in both places and to be gaining traction sort of regardless of, I think, um, Poland is something like 98 percent white European descent and still kind of this xenophobia and questions about immigration are really, really getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that the history in in America of the tie between racism and anti-Semitism is is slightly different. So, um, you know, the traditional narrative has been, or the fear is that Jews are kind of the masterminds behind the decay or or destruction of white Christian civilization in America, and that um, our instrument is almost the black population. So we've kind of found ways to unleash, you know, the black menace on white society through civil rights and left-wing politics and, you know, homosexuality and all these, you know, that there's this liberal agenda um, to destroy white civilization and Jews are kind of the the lawyers and scientists and, you know, psychologists and everything behind this, this great, you know, um, conspiracy. Um, so that's, that's the tie. And then it's, it, but it's gotten fogged over because there's this added layer where the right now seems to be very philo-Semitic where they love Israel because, um, you know, at the end of days, the Jews have to have returned to Israel for the Messiah to come back. And so um, they're all about, like, let's save Israel. And and right-wing Jews think, well, they're idiots, but we'll use them to, you know, save Israel. And and at the proper time, we'll just forget about them. Um, And so it all gets, you know, it all gets very complicated. That complicates things. And the other thing that complicates things, it it, it seems like in the American national myth, obviously this doesn't apply to Poland, but, you know, we have in the, in, in, during my lifetime accepted, uh, you know, and, and, and dramatized the narrative of the Holocaust in Hollywood and put America on the right side of that uh, argument so that, you know, the, the World War II, which was the good war, is the good war in part because it, it was against this aggression against a people that was horrific and terrible. And America was representing, you know, a different uh, principle. And so it's very interesting to me to see representatives of the right then go back to anti-Semitism. And, and how are they, you know, they have to elide this entire 
sort of myth-making apparatus uh, of the of the Second World War, which is normally something that you know those guys who are running around with guns in the in the forest would be proud of, right? Right. Well, you know, it, the mistake is to think any of these groups are monolithic, um, or that there's one monolithic. Uh, ideology or reason for anti-Semitism or racism. They're very complex and they vary, you know, by groups and across the country and across time. But I think one overriding narrative for the country as a whole and for, for the world as a whole is that they really only like Jews when they're victims. And there's this sense of Jews as being too powerful, conniving, kind of ugly and mean and you gotta, you know, but then when they're Victims, you can picture them behind barbed wire, you know, skeletal in a very weak position. And then we're like, oh, yeah. And so, you know, even the whole Israel narrative, when Israel was seen as this refuge for these pitiful victims, and then, you know, that was fine. Everybody was on the Jews' side and Israel was was viewed heroically. And during the wars of Arab aggression, when they, you know, all these huge Arab states surrounded Israel, attacked first and tried to wipe Israel into the sea. America, Christians, Jews, everybody, you know, the Israelis were seen as the heroes and nobody could believe that they won. Um, but the narrative, because they did win and they took, you know, they they took more land and then didn't give it back because they felt they needed this buffer, um, you know, it all turned. And now, of course, look, I'm plenty critical of Israeli politics. They're ruled by their own version of Trump. But um, the way the whole state gets demonized um, fits into this narrative as Jews as very powerful, ugly, mean creatures that, you know, um, what most people don't realize is how much Israel is like America, that there are very many, you know, there's a very active left and they just got taken over by their version of Trump. We've been talking about Conspiracy theories that are not based on fact. Uh, we talked uh, in, with with Steve about this narrative about how his uh, Lech Kaczynski was killed in a plane accident that you know his brother blames on the Russians. There's no facts to support this. Similarly, this Nunez memo, Nunez memo that we've been talking about in the American government claims that there's an FBI conspiracy against Trump. There's no facts to support this. Anti-Semitism and all the sort of rumors and things that build around that are totally unverifiable because they're not true. But it, it works in this authoritarian way of creating a false conspiracy that people can get excited about and use to make, create an other. You know, it's just right. this othering process. Right, exactly. It's, I mean, I think it's part of that, what you, what you were saying about um, the way that the right sort of is interested in the preservation of the Jewish people um, as related to uh, biblical b b uh, as related to yeah. yeah and um, yeah. then so it's sort of like unverifiable like that's, nonsense and then also Whitney like your point about World War II I mean like the United States turned um, Jewish refugees away right which is a narrative that's almost um, entirely erased like I think if you ask your average American school kid I think I think I might have learned that um from reading like, you know, Cavalier and Clay interviews with Michael Shaman maybe, or I feel like I definitely learned it outside of school. Right. Um, and, and these things are very deep in the Jewish consciousness, at least of my generation, much less, uh, almost not at all, the generation I teach at Michigan, but, you know, um, that America didn't take any <laughs> refugees and basically could have stopped, you know, could have bombed the train lines in Germany and didn't, you know, the way anti-Semitism in America, you know, contributed to, yeah. you know, the, the deaths. But the level of, of ignorance is just astonishing. I, I cannot tell you how many students I've had 
who who don't even know that Israel was founded as a refuge for you know, because the world was very sorry for, for the six million dead and the fact that everybody, all the refugees had been turned away. Um, and they think that Israel started the wars that led to them holding the occupied territories so they could seize more land because that's what Zionism is. And I said, well, no, they didn't start those wars. They were attacked. Um, and, and I've had students say that Israel was settled by American Jews who all came over from Long Island to seize <laughs> land from the Arabs, you know. So there's ignorance on on lots of sides. And um, oh, the other thing I wanted to say, too, this this notion of the conspiracy in America, you know, that's that's always been a, a strong factor. So um, every time a Jew is, is arrested for any kind of insider trading, you know, Michael Milken or Bernie Madoff kind of thing, you know, Jews are terrified because it, it reinforces the stereotype. You know, never mind that there are so many non-Jews who get arrested for this kind of, you know, financial wheeling and dealing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember when um, the insider trading stuff was going on and a bunch of South Asians were um, caught up in that. And then there started being these news stories that were like, South Asians appear to talk to each other in like a conspiratorial way. Mm-hmm. And all, like a lot of this, and then th- there were some South Asian reporters who wrote some of those stories. And then there were some, um, then there were sort of a lot of South Asian readers who were sort of reading that being like, so South Asian people talk to South Asian people. They have friends. I don't know like what you are, how you're calling out some sort of a strange conspiratorial exceptionalism here. What it like, what is it? It just was sort of a, it was a narrative that was sort of, I think probably maybe, a, a more recent manifestation of like what Jew- the Jewish community has been dealing with all along or the same way that, um, you know, when there's an act of terrorism, I feel like all of my friends who are American Muslims are sort of like, Oh God, please let this not be um, tied in any way to our community or right, like, course. please let, yeah. Like, please let this not be like this sort of um, the way that communities are, people are read as representative of their communities in ways exactly. that are it's sort of what you're talking about with people being, thinking of other communities as monolithic. Um, and yet, like, you know, here in the United States, we're about to have, um, this has been popping up all over my newsfeed. This this guy who's a Holocaust denier is poised to be the Republican nominee for the House of Representatives representing part of Chicago, for crying out loud. Right. right. And its suburbs. And he told the newspaper, I'm running for Congress, not the chancellor of Germany. And <laughs> I just was kind of like, you know, going back to that question about what action are we supposed to take in regards to anti-Semitism, right? I mean, I spent the fall in Germany where it is against the law to be this. I mean, this guy could not go around saying this. Right. And and I wouldn't want that to be the case. But, um, you know, I think I think a lot of people my age are feeling on all fronts like we, we told you this stuff never went away and you didn't believe us. So in terms of, you know, I was going around the country talking about uh, sexism in STEM fields and, you know, the young women would look at me as if I were crazy because they thought, you know, the world is just a totally fair and equal place for young women. So the whole a Me Too movement. I'm I'm not happy, but I'm sort of going like, yeah, okay. Now you see, I wasn't crazy. It's been there all along, and you know, I think when a lot of black people saw Trump be elected and all this racism came out, there's that great SNL skit where you know the white people are watching the returns and and going nuts, and all the black members of the cast are just rolling their eyes like, yeah, we've been telling you this all along. And so I think, you know, for Jews, it's sort of like we didn't think it all got hunky-dory and went away. Um, but it, and it so much depends on where you live. If you live in New York, you know, 
no, it's not there. And then if you live a lot of other places in the country, the world is a very different place. Yeah, um, I think it's really important. The point that you made earlier about how the United States uh, certainly uh, wasn't always on the right side of the of what was happening in Germany during the Holocaust is really important, you know, to, to be, remember that we had leaders like Charles Lindbergh and Henry mm-hmm. Ford who were directly anti-Semitic, and that was, in fact, a, a very popular position in the country prior they to the Hitler war. They were Hitler supporters. Yes. They weren't just anti-Semitic. They were friends of Hitler. Absolutely. And that history has to be remembered, and when you forget it is when it starts to come back, is what it feels right. like to me. And, and, you know, I think we can see now that the country is kind of half and half, right? And yeah. it can tilt one way or the other through a few million votes, Right. And when it does, when it tilts to somebody like Obama, we think, oh, the world is saved, right? And the, uh, it's really just that we, we got a few percentage points higher, right? And then it tilts back, and we're like, oh, my God, we're all doomed. And actually, not much has changed except the tilt. And I think when I, when I first moved to Michigan and got the idea for breaking and entering, I was still thinking, like, it's kind of cool that the people who are this different see themselves as Americans enough that it it trumps, you know, it, it overplays their differences. And I was a little foolish to think that, too. I mean, but um, it kind of doesn't. Quickly, there was this chilling line in the James Trobe article that we talked about in the first half of the show where uh, he was in the countryside speaking to uh, uh, a local elected leader, and the guy says to him, I would suggest you read this book by Henry Ford. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, my God. Well, That's, so is it, it is creepy, but, you know, so I, my partner for quite a few years was a Polish Catholic and, and, and I mean, really very Polish. Um, he spends a lot of time there. And so I spent time there with him too. And he was beginning to feel very hopeful about Poland because he felt the young generation was really changing. You know, there was a homosexual mayor in some small town and, you know, there are a lot of young uh, Poles who are really love all things Jewish and think it's very hip and they're, it's, it's very kind of creepy. They took over the old Jewish ghetto in, um, uh, Krakow and, it, it's there are no Jews there, but all these Jewish restaurants and you can buy little wooden Jew dolls and learn Yiddish. And it's it's sort of like what we did to the American Indians. We, you know, tried to wipe them out and then heroicize them and sell little Indian figures. And but, um, you know, but but it was becoming more more liberal. And then, uh, you know, it just again, it, it, these countries that are half and half and then it tilts back and. Um, you know, he's he's totally disgusted by what's going on there now. But it's just the question here, too, is, is the younger generation coming up, like my son's generation, your generation, going to be able to kind of bring us forward to a place where it's not just sort of 50-50 in the country and does it tilt this way or that, but it really starts to make big changes in those percentages. And I wonder um, the ways in which we're making room for that tilt by, I mean, you mentioned Obama before, and I think it's, I mean, I feel like I can't possibly talk about this too much, right? Like, I mean, Obama um, was like a prolific user of drone strikes and a huge number of civilians overseas are, you know, considered, I don't know, I suppose by the military or, or, or someone somewhere considers that acceptable collateral damage, collateral damage. You know, we're turning a, 
way or rather not making room for a huge number of refugees, particularly related to Syria. I mean, how are we going to look back at this later and think, um, you know, oh, during World War II, we turned away um, the turned away Jewish refugees and we should have made room for them. You know, now I think we're not making room for people who really need to come here whose lives are on the line. And it just seems like by also not being critical enough of like Obama deported a huge number of people. And there's a sort of narrative like, I mean, and I think, you know, I, he was elected and I wept with joy and I, and yet I can't really look away from the fact that, you know, I have a lot of friends who are really committed to also remembering that like, not only is the Trump administration dangerous for people, but the Trump administration is in some ways like a really natural successor to some of the policy that was entrenched under not only Republican, but also Democratic administrations in a way that like is, I mean, it's really painful to think about. Yeah, I think the Democrats thought that if they came down tough on enforcing immigration laws, they could then get the immigration reform and, you know, um, legalize everybody who was here. And it didn't, you know, it didn't work that way. They were playing kind of both sides of the game. And, you know, no, no administration <laughs> is perfect. You know, the, the JFK, you know, brought yeah. us to Vietnam. Um, if you see but, the moral point that, oh, OK, yes, we should deport more people, then. Oh, no, no I'm against it. Yeah, I know we, we are. I'm but, not, yeah, but yeah, you know, I, by seeing that and by and by us on the left sort of being in accordance with it. I think Suki's point is that we sort of set the stage for some of this in right. a way. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's why um, I, I'm really out there for for immigrant. I mean, the most marches I've been to are for deportations, DACA, you know, letting more immigrants in because, um, and 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 those are usually Jewish groups that I'm marching with because. You know, Jews, especially Jews my age, is just we we're terrified. I mean, I think the sickest feeling I get is um, when I think that I'm sitting by and allowing practices to go on that um, Germans allowed to happen in their country because they weren't taking Hitler seriously or they were too afraid once he got in power to buck him. Or Americans who were like, yeah, the Jews are being killed in Europe, but that's Europe. And what can I do about it? And, yeah, we're not letting them in, but they're kind of sketchy people anyway. We don't want to think we're the same people who turned away the St. Louis when it came with Jewish refugees and we wouldn't let them land in the plane. The um, British wouldn't let, let the boat land in um, then occupied Palestine and uh, and the boat sank and everybody died. Well, um, that effort at being a uh, conscience in art and in many other parts of life is one of the uh, great parts of the great American Jewish tradition. Um, and that includes your work, Eileen. So thank you for well, joining us for this talk. Well, thank you. If in any tiny, tiny way I've been part of it, then then I'm happy. <laughs> um, everyone uh, who's listening, make sure to check out Eileen's forthcoming work, The Bible of Dirty Jokes. Um, and that is coming out from Four Way Books. When is it coming out, Eileen? It's coming out next month. Oh, my gosh. Very exciting. So we're looking thank forward you. to reading it. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for this week's Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Whitney and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or at the Literary Hub website. We really appreciate all the feedback and discussion we had from listeners and friends about our last episode. We think of this podcast as a community, so we hope you'll keep it up. 
You can find links to the reading we referenced this week on our Facebook page at FNF Pod or on Twitter 